I'm a winner, um, and as Carolyn has already described, um, I did do, I was here to do my master's a few years ago now. Um, I'm currently doing my um, doctoral research at Royal Holloway, um, but the research that I'm primarily going to be um, discussing today uh, is with my collaboration with Prisoners Education Trust, um, which are an organisation, um, a charity that supports learners in prison um, through... Uh, through policy influencing and increasingly research, but primarily through giving grants for distance learning. Um, yes. So to give you a little bit of an overview, um, I understand that I might be coming at this from a slightly different angle from how we've been talking about um, vulnerability um, and various other and resilience and all of the factors and mental health and well-being um, that we've been talking about today. Um, I'm kind of, there's two elements to my presentation. Firstly, I'm kind of seeking um, discussion for how we can bring together ideas of um, well-being and education and other supportive um, mental health implications as well um, in a way that I don't have the answers for. So that's definitely a discussion that I'd like to come from you. Um, and then I'm also going to be talking um, about a project that uh, we were doing with Prisoners Education Trust alongside the University of Cambridge, um, which used um, a concept of learning culture and developing learner agency and co-production with staff um, to engage the hard-to-reach. And this is a model that I think that probably we'll be able to see some connections with um, in a lot of the engagement issues that we might be seeing um, in other areas around criminal justice and... Um, um, yes. It's going to get complicated, isn't it? Sorry. Um, so, very, very briefly, uh, education provision in prison, for those who may not know much about it. Um, at the moment, and I'm very much saying at the moment, because it may be about to be completely flipped in its head in a few days, um, which I'll get to at the bottom, but it's currently led, it's privatised by the Offender Learning and Skills Service. They hold contracts at, um, um, with different providers that run it in, in each prison. Um, very, very briefly, the skills funding agency um, holds the, the money, the purse strings, and 80% of the funding is targeted um, at the low GCSE level. Um, and that does largely speak to some of the needs that we do see, the educational needs in prison. Um, but this literacy, numeracy, basic IT, um, really, really strong focus on that can, can be very exclusionary to those that don't fit within this OLAS idea of needs. Um, those that are higher um, have higher education aspirations, um, but also those that aren't looking to do literacy, numeracy, or IT. Um, so I'm going to talk a little bit in a moment about options for learning outside of OLAS, but just very briefly, if you aren't aware of the Coates Review, which is um, an ongoing um, review into education in prison at the moment, they're going to be, um, they're going to be uh, releasing their reports very, very soon, like in a couple of weeks, I believe, which is looking at ways that we can really, really broaden and widen um, access to education in prisons um, and provision, um, and it fits very much, I think, with the autonomy, governor autonomy that's happening with prisons um, at the moment. Okay. So, 
again, very, very briefly, and this is quite a simplistic um, conception, so don't attack too much. But um, when we talk about the purpose of education in prison, which is fundamental because it defines everything that we're trying to do when we're in there, what we want to see um, outside, there are, I believe there are some post-release tensions. On the one hand, we have policy provision that's still largely like many other things in the criminal justice system, looks at the reduction of reoffending um, as a conception. And of course there are many benefits to this, but my argument is that um, by looking at reducing reoffending mantra, we are working towards personal deficits um, and looking at educational needs, um, this narrow conception of employability, which I'll refer to in a moment. And also it really risks individualising um, responsibility for offending behaviour and removing the structures around why somebody may find themselves um, in that situation, educationally, being failed by schools, etc. Um, and I contrast this to a concept that, um, that leans a bit more closely with um, conceptions of desistance. So instead of looking at personal deficits, we can be looking at building strengths, that asset-based model. Um, instead of looking at educa educational needs, we can be looking at educational aspirations. Um, and the Hopkins research recently has demonstrated that there are only 11% of people in prison that state that learning is not for me. So therefore, we've got up to 90% of people that want to be potentially, maybe, engaged in education. So that's interesting. Um, we're also looking at, towards a wider conception of employability, looking at vocations, looking for what people want to be doing, careers. Um, and also, we need to be understanding um, the learner identity in prison. Okay. So, to explain a little bit more about Prisoners Education Trust, um, despite having separated that, I'm now going to talk a bit about reducing your funding. Um, we do it as, is everybody, or is anybody aware of the Ministry of Justice Data Lab service? Um, so this was, so um, in 2013, I think it was, the Ministry of Justice um, put out this analytical service for third sector organisations that work with people in prison. Um, and what you could do is essentially submit your data for people that you've worked with, um, and they were able to um, do a controlled match analysis with um, the police national computer and see from two years post, or no, one year post, um, reoffending rates. So essentially it was trying to match, it was trying to be able to see if you had any impact on reoffending offending rates. Um, so we had a really large sample because we've been giving grants to people about, well, 29,000. Um, so we had a sample of 3,000, the match control group, we were able to match, the attrition rate went and took it down to 200,000. But what we found, um, unlike many other charities, but this is largely because one of the issues with this is the big numbers that were required, which we had, uh, but a lot didn't. But we found that the, um, those that did receive a grant from the Prisoners Education Trust seemed to have um, about a quarter reduction in the offending post-release. Um, I'll come back to why that's interesting in a moment because we have these mechanisms of why we believe that education may be relevant for the systems, very simplistically, which is what the reducing reoffending um, concept brings in, is the simplistic employment model that we develop somebody's skills, their knowledge, potentially their qualifications, they'll go out, get employed, and then stop reoffending. But we're thinking about, maybe it's a bit more complicated than that, and that learning um, can develop concepts of agency, um, identity, self-worth and resilience, and that may be what the mechanism is that leads us to desistance. But also the process of applying to Prisoners Education Trust means that people write a letter and 
if we can, which we largely do, we will give you the course, we will give you money and we'll say we believe in you and we trust you and we want you to do this. So there may be something in this process of affirmation um, alongside the learning and the agency that we believe um, may have something to do with it, moving on to desistance, and how all of these concepts that we associate with learning may be related to this wider concept of um, emotional well-being within the prison. Um, so these are some of the concepts that I just wanted to push out to you before... Um, what we were able to do with that data lab data, uh, because we had some big numbers, um, is we were able to actually separate it by course type. And we saw some things that we weren't really expecting to see. Because um, one of the... Um, most of the grants that we give are for courses that are formalised um, and you know, accredited, etc. But one thing that we have here, the arts and hobbies... That's just a £50 grant that we can give to anybody who um, is interested in having a £50 grant to do some arts and hobbies in cell. Um, there's no qualification attached, there's no learning attached, there's no um, set learning attached. Um, and so we weren't expecting that to have had an impact on reoffending rates, but actually we found that it was in comparison to our accredited courses that came back inconclusive. So we thought, hmm, what sort of mechanisms are we talking about here? I just wanted to, I mean, I don't have any answers for this. And please don't take away from this that, okay, well, fine, let's stop accrediting courses in prison or giving courses in prison, um, because that's hopefully not the learning that, that, that we believe this is. But there may be something about, yep. Yeah. I was worried that unless the accredited actually has a negative impact, it would be more down to a statistical size rather than... The actual conclusion that one works and no one doesn't. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Art and hobbies is better than accredited. Is Sorry. The, I mean, you can't conclude from this that art and hobbies is better than accredited. Yeah, no, but what, what, we, but what we were weren't expecting is, I mean, we do actually have a larger group size for arts and hobbies than um, for the accredited. However, we weren't expecting to see any statistically significant um, impact of the arts and hobbies, which may be quite cynical on our part, actually. <laughs> but um, we think, I think that might be quite interesting when we're trying to think about the sorts of mechanisms that we should be measuring when we're talking about education in prison and if reducing reoffending is necessarily, you know, the, the ultimate thing that we should be um, judging everything by. Um, also, just a little bit... How much time have I got? Uh, you've got uh, ten minutes. Okay. Okay. So, um, also, uh, just to link in some of the some of the wider outcomes that are very clear from um, from the literature about how we can apply education and look at it a bit wider than it is. Education as a coping mechanism. I'm sure none of this is going to be um, shocking to anybody. But education is seen as a coping mechanism by many prisoners, um, and it's used as a tool to avoid prisonisation. Um, it's a protective factor um, against self-harm, suicide and violence, as the Ombudsman in 2014. Um, smaller intervention evaluations have demonstrated that it can support positive contributions to family life in, lots of, in many ways. Increases in self-esteem, um, shifts in life narrative, um, increased sense of agency and improved mental health. Um, yeah. So just to give you a little bit of data that we had from Prisoners Education Trust, which was um, a survey that we sent out um, via a newspaper that goes out in prison. 
Um, we had 343 responses to this. And we found that 69% um, said that their learning had improved their ability to cope with prison. Um, and 40% said that it improved a lot. And in responses to um, really open questions, um, like any other, any other, anything else you want to add, we found this const constantly recurring thing. This is something that we see in a lot of our correspondence. This link between... So having the opportunity to use my time productively in prison has saved my sanity. I think I'd be on antidepressants at the very least without it. Um, <coughs> keeping my mind occupied helps to lessen the frequency and severity of my bipolar episodes. Um, this in turn means I'm more able to cope with the stresses of prison life. My studies may well have saved my life. And these, these, may be, um, these aren't necessarily the most extreme things that we hear. This is quite semi-representative, I'd say, some of our correspondents. Um, and education gives me a reason to wake up in the morning and breathe. Okay. Right. So, in a summary, these are some of the links that... Um, these are some of the wider outcomes that I think that we should be thinking about when we're talking about education and, um, and um, well, more so learning and links for well-being in prison. Um, but one of the things that we think we might be able to um, implement with this is um, by mobilising culture. And we think that by um, developing positive learning cultures within prison, we'll be able to impact much more um, easily and readily on these um, wider outcomes for learning rather than much more, um, much more formalised and rigid that we may see if it's removed to an education department. Um, and just to talk to you, this is where I start talking about this other project. Um, um, so, <coughs> so through um, a literature uh, review and also through correspondence and, um, and discussions and roundtables with third sector organisations about what a learning culture in prison may look like, we came up with um, these dimensions that we were trying to ultimately trying to measure. Um, so we were looking at empowering. So by empowering, we were looking for an environment where prisoners are encouraged by all staff to have a say in their learning and personal development in the prison. Um, inclusive. Um, inclusive is the extent to which staff encouraged prisoners to positively engage in some sort of learning. And we mean learning in a very wide sense here. Um, and celebrated their achievements when they did so. Very significant. Um, aspirational. We're... Through aspirational, we're focusing on um, how well the culture encouraged prisoners to imagine a positive future for themselves. Um, engaging and relevant, so the extent to which prisoners um, are aware of available learning opportunities, um, and also how varied, interesting and relevant they are to, um, to their future plans. And also um, safe, and by safe we mean physical safety, we mean psychological safety, we mean feeling safe. Um, so this was our original conception um, of a learning culture. And we wanted to create um, an intervention whereby we were able to use this concept of a learning culture and develop um, something which used co-production with prisoners and staff working together um, to develop this concept of learner voice and increased agency within the prisoners. And we wondered, we wondered whether or not that would be able to impact on this prison-wide learning culture. Um, so just to explain oops, a little bit more about what I mean by learner voice as forming part of this learner culture, 
Um, learner voice is the involvement of learners and potential learners, so those that may not be engaged in learning or anything else within the prison, um, in shaping their learning opportunities that are available to them. Um, and this may be a familiar um, uh, picture for those, but I don't know if you can see, but we're talking about moving from this process of inform to cons consultation to involvement, collaboration and ultimately empowerment. So in order to create this intervention, um, we had a toolkit that was created from best practice around the prison about the ways that um, prisoners were developing their learner voice. Um, and we created three training sessions, um, one with staff only, where we'd go in and train about the concepts of uh, learner voice. And then we'd go back and then we'd leave and then we'd come back um, a few weeks later and we worked with staff and prisoners together. We invited prisoners at that stage. And that was where we started to come up with an action plan. And the whole premise of this was that prisoners and staff would be um, discussing the needs of their particular prison and coming up with something for their particular prison um, that could take them further up that ladder. And then we would leave them to get on with it and then come back and launch the activity. So this was our um, intervention. We ran it in eight different prisons, which were particularly selected for their breadth of function, um, age, gender. We tried to cover as much as possible within eight, our eight prisons. And from start to finish, um, we were looking at around about six months from when we first went in to um, afterwards. And so... Sorry, the main point I'm missing out here is that what we, want, what we were trying to um, support prisoners and staff in doing was creating this project that was going to reach out um, to those um, deemed hard to reach. So that's those, for the purposes of this research, we were looking at those that weren't engaged um, in purposeful activity on a regular basis. So the final project, um, the, the eight of them came up with. Um, one of them came up with a learner council, obviously quite a democratic process. Another one, which is a women's prison, um, came up with this idea of rebranding their education department because all of the posters on their education department were of men and they found that actually that meant women weren't engaging, they didn't relate, bizarrely. And then we also had this prisoner newsletter that was about sharing good practice and sharing positive stories around the prison. Um, interesting, we're going to talk about this, if I've got a couple of minutes in a moment, about the prison that used education and skills champions um, and resting on this horizontal communication between um, selected representatives and prisoners across the prison. Um, and then a prisoner information desk, which was ultimately um, a desk on every wing, which um, had information about everything that was going on around the prison, how to access all the different types of services, such as housing, such as um, um, drug support, uh, where to go for a, if you want to book a family visit, all of those sorts of things, as well as um, education, health opportunities, all of these things. But they were on the prison and they were manned by a one staff member and one prisoner. Um, in order to evaluate the changes in the learning culture, um, we, our methodology, we, we developed a survey um, in order to measure those dimensions that we I previously discussed. We had one for staff and one for prisoners. We ran them out across the whole prison, pre and post workshops, um, before and after the whole project. We also um, held observations throughout all of the workshops. 
We had interviews with staff and prisoners before and afterwards, and also focus groups with prisoner participants at the end. So we wanted to capture the change in the learning and rehabilitative culture from, of course, both staff and prisoners, and also capture any um, engagement of those within the prison that were previously not engaged. Um, ultimately, our findings led us to um, this three-cluster model, um, where ultimately, at the end of our session, we didn't really give them much time to allow this to embed, so we weren't really expecting... Um, to see many results, particularly in our cross-prison survey. Um, we were quite pleasantly surprised. Um, we did have some prisons out of the eight that weren't able to get this project off the ground, and we were expecting that, and we have turned them the resistors. Um, and then there were also those prisons that were able to get the projects off the ground and were really doing really positive work, and our qualitative evidence demonstrated that very um, readily. However, we weren't able to get any statistical significance in the um, changes in the survey feedback. And then finally, we had the visionaries and enthusiasts who both our qualitative and our quantitative evidence demonstrated a shift in learning culture um, across the prison um, after we'd been working with them for these few months. Um, and the characteristics that we found would determine where a prison sat was how committed um, staff and prisoners both were throughout this entire process. In some, mainly in some of the resistors, we found that this inconsistency, um, well, maybe that's another point, but this inconsistency between, with, with staff, we would turn up and there would be somebody different there every time. Nobody knew where they stood. Um, so commitment throughout was really significant. Effective communication, and by effective communication, we meant horizontal and vertical, it was very, very significant that it all kind of came together. Um, we had buy-in from the governors and staff on the ground. Staff on the ground in, in a prison can make or break any um, innovation you're trying to push, um, but if you have the governors buy-in as well, that can ease that up immediately, and we saw that, that really distinguished between these two. Um, consistency in approach, which is something I think I really addressed before. And also the level of control and autonomy that was given to prisoners. That was really fundamental in um, separating where on our three-cluster model these prisons were situated. Okay. Very briefly, um, I want to talk you through just one <laughs> case study, um, because I've only got one minute left. And uh, this is in this particular prison, they, they really were very successful in engaging these hard-to-reach um, in a way that we didn't really see so much in the others. Um, and in this prison, this was the Learning and Skills Champions prison, um, from the very, very beginning, they had staff from senior management, they had officers, they had people from around the prison were engaged in our project. Um, but they also had uh, prisoners engaged in the project, and they invited them along very early on in the process. Um, they came up with this idea about learning and skills champions because it came from one of the younger prisoners in the institution who felt like he wanted to represent younger prisoners. Um, we also had somebody from PE who wanted to represent the gym, and we ended up with somebody who was representing every activity that was happening in the prison and different groups. Um, and what they did in their role... Actually, let me step back one second. They had an extremely high rate 
of um, people just staying behind their doors at the beginning of the day. Some, every time they'd come and get unlocked, they had maybe about 40% of their prison just would not engage. <laughs> they wouldn't even go to gym, which is big. They, there was a really negative culture um, in engagement. Um, but with these 12 men... Um, all their job was was to go onto the wing and just have some heart-to-hearts and be like, well, why, why aren't you doing this? And um, are you aware of these opportunities that are available? Um, the time span that we had between our second intervention where um, the prisoners were present and they started this project and when we came back was maybe a few weeks and they managed to have um, 80 extra people in, engaged in education or in some form of activity in the prison that previously weren't, and they'd been tracking that, so that was very useful to us. So what we took from that was very much about the relationships between the staff and the prisoners was um, very non-hierarchical from the very beginning. Um, but moreover, that horizontal relationship between prisoners spreading the word to other prisoners was really fundamental and very, very quickly made this change. But primarily, um, we had some really fantastic um, outcomes measured in terms of the um, levels of fulfilment that those that were engaged in the project um, took from the project. Um, so, in terms of conclusions, trying to pull this together, um, I'd state that engaging these hard to reach should be the responsibility of the combined efforts from groups and individuals around the prison. Um, and this should not ever be an individual penalised for not engaging. Um, we also, I'd also conclude that the possibility to influence learning culture um, across a wide space in a short space of time is possible, um, even when working with a small group of innovators. Um, and also that effective communication, commitment, level of co-production, prisoners and staff working together, um, most certainly appeared significant in the success of this project. Thank you.